I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 134, and it's the first in a series of episodes on Tudor London. But first, I have two announcements or pieces of admin. The first is that, of course, it's Thanksgiving week in the U.S., so that also means that along with that are Black Friday deals, and I've got some Black Friday specials at my shop at TudorFair.com. There's some cool new stuff up for the holidays. There's a really cool shirt that says Talk Tudor to Me, and um, there's some Christmas decorations, stockings, and tree skirts, Christmas ornaments with the six wives, things like that, Um, some really cool new t-shirts and mugs, all kinds of stuff. So TudorFair.com, there's a gift guide so you can pick out some of the more popular things. And there's special Black Friday deals, everything like that. There's also $5 off the Tudor Planner, the 2020 Tudor Planner. So check out TudorFair.com. Also, Black Friday, TudorCon 2020 is coming up October 2nd through 4th. And if you go to englandcast.com slash TudorCon 2020 until the 2nd of December, the price is $50 off the early bird price. So the early bird price is $50 off the regular price. But if you go and get your ticket before December 2nd, you will also get an additional $50 off. So it's $100 off the regular price, only until December 2nd. So if you don't know yet, TudorCon is three days of feasting and learning from speakers and parties and friendship with new tutor holics and tutor enthusiasts just like us. And it happens in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, October 2nd through 4th at a beautiful restored winery next to the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair. So you can go to englandcast.com slash tutorcon2020 to see all of the testimonials of people who came this year and video highlights and book your ticket so you can come and start to plan your trip to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania in in, uh, 2020. So this episode is about Tudor London, specifically what 16th century London was like for our Tudor friends. This is actually the first in what will be a mini series feature on life in 16th century cities with several episodes on Tudor London. 
And while I will talk about landmarks, I will do so in the context of their impact on the lives of real people. Because that, of course, is what I'm most interested in here. Landmarks and buildings are interesting to me only insofar as the stories that they can tell about the people who lived there, who died there, who laughed, cried, grieved, worshipped, and had fellowship with others there. So today I'm going to give you a very brief introduction to London at the start of the 16th century, and then talk specifically about an aspect of 16th century London that I find fascinating and that is St. Paul's and the publishing houses and booksellers around the cathedral and Paternoster Row. So as the sun rose on the 16th century, London was a city of between 50,000 and 60,000 people cramped mostly into the Roman walls of what we would now call the square mile. It was still recovering from the Black Death over 100 years earlier when its population was more like 80,000. So 120, 150 years before, it had been 80,000, and it had recovered back up to 50 to 60,000. It was the smallest of the major European capitals, and in many places like Paris or Milan or Venice, all of which had populations of over 100,000, people would have considered it a backwater, barely on the map. But in England, it was huge. It was more than four times the size of the other major centers like Norwich or York. And by the end of the century, London would be transformed into a city of almost 200,000 people. So I'm interested in exploring that transformation in more depth through looking at how London came to dominate commerce, trade, and exploration during this century. But let's go back to the 1480s. There are several traveler accounts I'd like to read to you about what London was like when Henry Tudor would have known it coming to the capital as the new king freshly crowned from Bosworth Field. We have several accounts of London from this time, including from Dominic Mancini. Now he was visiting London for a short period right at the time that Richard III took the throne. So he's often quoted for his eyewitness accounts of the events of 1483. But he also wrote about London itself. He described it as the royal city and the capital of the whole kingdom, both in size and in wealth. He goes on, on the banks of the Thames are enormous warehouses for imported goods, also numerous cranes of remarkable size to unload merchandise from the ships. From the district on the east, adjacent to the tower, three paved streets lead towards the wall on the west. They're the busiest and almost straight. Here are to be found all manner of minerals, wines, honey, pitch, wax, ropes, thread, grain, and fish. I mean, honestly, who even needs Target when there's wines, honey, pitch, wax, ropes, thread, grain, and fish available, right? <laughs> And it was a cosmopolitan city, just like today. Andreas Franciscus, a Venetian who wrote of his travels in London, Itineranium Britannae, in 1497, remarked, The town itself stretches from east to west and is three miles in circumference. However, its suburbs are so large that they greatly increase its circuit. So now where he's talking about there would have been places like Islington or Moorfields, or even Kentish Town, and over then towards the West Covent Garden. These are suburbs of London that are starting to develop. So then he continues, throughout the town are to be seen many workshops of craftsmen. This makes the whole town look exceedingly prosperous and well-stocked. The working in wrought silver, tin, or white lead is very expert here, and perhaps the finest I have ever seen. There are many mansions which do not seem very large from the outside, but inside are quite considerable. And what he's talking about here are the whole way along what we would know now as the Strand. There were these huge palaces like the Savoy, places that would have had huge gardens backing out onto the river. And that's the mansions that he was talking about. 
But then he continues, all the streets are so badly paved that they get wet at the slightest quantity of water. This happens very frequently. A vast amount of evil smelling mud is formed, which does not disappear, but lasts nearly the whole year round. The citizens, therefore, in order to remove mud and filth from their boots, are accustomed to spread rushes on the floors of all houses. Merchants, not only from Venice, but also Florence and Lucca, and many from Genoa and Pisa, from Spain, Germany, and other countries, meet here to handle business with the utmost keenness. Londoners have such fierce tempers and wicked dispositions that they not only despise the way Italians live, but actually pursue them with uncontrollable hatred. And whereas Bruges foreigners are hospitably received by everybody, here the Englishmen use them with the utmost contempt and arrogance and make them the subject of insults. And then also he finishes on a really funny note. He says, they eat very frequently and at times more than is suitable. (laughs) So that was his picture of London. We see the beginnings of a city on the cusp of being cosmopolitan and multinational, a hub of trade and merchants. So now getting to our landmark for today, St. Paul's Cathedral. But it's not the St. Paul's that our Tudor friends would have known. Now their St. Paul's was Gothic. It was perhaps the fourth Christian church on Ludgate Hill which was also, of course, the home of other Celtic and pagan worship during Roman and pre-Roman times. So Ludgate Hill was seen as a very holy place for thousands of years. The church that our Tudor friends went to had been started in the 11th century. The cathedral had one of Europe's tallest spires, the height of which is traditionally given as about 489 feet. That's 149 meters, surpassing everything but Lincoln Cathedral. Now, Christopher Wren, writing about 150 years later when he was a surveyor, he said that that was an overestimate, and he thought it was more like 460 feet, 140 meters. A William Benham noted that the cathedral probably resembled in general outline that of Salisbury, but it was 100 feet longer, and the spire was 60 or 80 feet higher. The tower was open internally as far as the base of the spire, and was probably more beautiful both inside and out than that of any other English cathedral. The spire of St. Paul's was actually destroyed during our time period in 1561 when it was hit by lightning. Under the reign of James I, the architect Inigo Jones oversaw some reconstruction work, but that work stopped during the English Civil War, and then, of course, the entire church burned during the Great Fire to be replaced by the Christopher Wren masterpiece that we have today. But the area that I want to talk about is the open area around the church. So first off, there was a small parish church, St. Gregory by St. Paul's, that was in the shadow of the spire. So like by Westminster Abbey, there's still St. Margaret's right next door. It was a similar situation where there was this small parish church right next to the cathedral. But there was also a large open area called the churchyard of St. Paul's Cross, known as St. Paul's Churchyard. This had been a popular place to meet and gossip for generations. During the medieval period, this is where the citizens had gathered for the folkmoot, the loose legislative body that would handle the administrative affairs, almost like a city council today. By the Tudor period, that had ended. But what was left was the churchyard as an open area where people could walk and chat and listen to sermons and buy books. So if you look at the first 
quarto of Richard, the title page of the first quarto of Richard III, you see the printed version of Shakespeare's play was sold by Andrew Wise, who was dwelling in Paul's churchyard at the sign of the angel in 1597. If you look at many of the title pages of the plays by Shakespeare and his contemporaries, you will find similar inscriptions. Paul's churchyard was known for Paul's Cross, an open-air pulpit where preachers could give sermons to everyone who would gather to listen, almost like a precursor to today's Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. These sermons could be on any subject from religion to politics to world affairs. They would often then be printed and offered for sale. So stationery shops and bookshops sprang up all around the pulpit and sold copies of these sermons. An example of this was on the 8th of June in 1561 when Bishop Pilkington preached a sermon at St. Paul's Cross on the causes of the destruction of the spire from the aforementioned lightning strike. Now, of course, our Tudor friends wouldn't have seen it just as a lightning strike. They would have seen it as a judgment from God on something. So he denounced abuses of the church. And that sermon then led to an angry reply from John Moran, a chaplain to Bishop Bonner. And then Pilkington went back and issued a confutation in which he followed up all of his original accusations. And all of these sermons would have been available for sale from a print shop owned by William Sears at the west end of the cathedral. And his particular branding that he hung up was a sign of a hedgehog outside his shop. A little note on directions and how people would have given directions and and seen the city and sort of located themselves within the city. There weren't street signs like there are today. There weren't guides. There wasn't an A to Z or Google Maps or anything like that. So the way people would have remembered and located themselves within the city would have been according to the topography and the signs that hung up for different shops. And since literacy was still growing and a lot of people couldn't read or write, people would have signs or particular images that they would hang out. So we have the sign of the hedgehog, the sign of angels, we have mermaids, all kinds of stuff like that to represent the various booksellers. And that's how every kind of trade would would handle that. And that's how people would give directions to each other at the same time, too. If they were trying to say to come over for dinner or something like that, they would give directions according to, to the topography, the hills, and anything like that, and then also these signs. So Paul's Cross Churchyard became the book-selling hub of London, and in fact for all of England, with hundreds of titles available by the 1520s on topics ranging from religion to travel to science and politics. By the 1550s, there were dozens of printers and stationers running shops adjacent to the churchyard. They organized into the stationers company with a headquarter building to the south of the cathedral. Now, being a printer demanded not just skill and hard work, but also a lot of patience. So they would set by hand each individual letter of the books that they printed, some in different languages, including Latin and Greek, as well as English and French. So can you imagine that? And they were doing it all in reverse to like a mirror image because of then you put the paper on. So you were doing this in reverse in different languages, one letter at a time. Can you imagine that? So many printers would employ highly skilled workmen, including some that they brought over from Antwerp, which was further along in the book creating, book publishing business than London was. The bookshops in Paul's, in St. Paul's were owned largely by foreign booksellers until about the middle of the 16th century. England didn't even have its own printing press until the 1490s with William Caxton. 
and in 1484, Richard III had passed an act of exemption to foreign printers, encouraging them to come over and set up shop in London. The central place where they would settle was at St. Paul's. But by the middle of the 16th century, Londoners were becoming worried about all the foreign competition, and so they passed another act in 1534, outlawing a lot of the foreign workers. But still, there were, there were ways to get around that, especially if you needed somebody whose skills you couldn't get in London. So like I said, the print shops would hang these signs outside their shops to identify themselves. In addition to Sears' Hedgehog, there was a sun, a Bible, mermaids, like I said. And the printers would get a license to print a specific work. This was their early form of copyright. They would pay a fee to the stationer's company and then in return be given the exclusive rights to print that title. But the Bishop of London and the Privy Council actually reserved the right to censor any book that was deemed too controversial. In the 1550s, it was possible to buy books for only a few pennies. This was a massive change from just 50 years earlier when printing was in its infancy in England. Like I said, I think I did an episode a few years ago on the printing in William Caxton. I know I did, but I think I said it before. I did an episode on printing in William Caxton, so you will want to check that out. I'll add a link in the show notes at englandcast.com slash St. Paul's. All one word, no abbreviations or apostrophes, just S-T-P-A-U-L-S. So englandcast.com slash St. Paul's. I find this so interesting in part because there's so many parallels to our own period here where information is suddenly so much more available than it was before. And you think about this with the internet and it's so much more available and so inexpensive so that most people can consume it. You know, I remember a time when you had to go to the library and look things up on microfilm and now it's all just available in online databases and things like that. So the kind of downside of that or the flip side is that with the barriers to entry being so much lower, anybody can set up a news site or a reference site. And, you know, who knows how reliable that information actually is. And this is something we talk a lot about these days. But this is also something that worried our Tudor friends, especially the monarchs and the council, because if anybody could set up a print shop and you didn't have to be in a monastery, you know, typing or writing things out by hand, yeah, who had control over that? And that was something that really bothered our leader, our monarchs and the Privy Council during this period. And I think it's such an interesting parallel to today. And, and I like to think about that. So as you walked through Paul's churchyard, there were Bibles, there were histories. As Shakespeare and all the playwrights got started, Ben Jonson, they had all of the different dramas, the tragedies and the comedies. There were sermons and law books. There were also cheaper printed sheets with sermons and tales of murders and tragedies. Later on, as the scientific revolution got started, you could get books um, from Francis Bacon's newest studies. You could get books on silkworms and mulberry trees in Virginia. And you could also get an English translation of Boccaccio's Decameron. So all sorts of stuff like that. I think about with myself the first time I walked into a Borders bookshop and all of the different books that were there. It was like this huge, massive store filled with books, and it just kind of blew my mind, right? And I think that's how it must have been for our friends who were maybe arriving scholars from for the first time and walking into Paul's churchyard and seeing all of these stands. So many of the printers would have had stalls in St. Paul's Churchyard, but the main hub of the printing itself was done in Paternoster Row, the lane just north of the churchyard. 
Bookbinders had been there since the mid-15th century at least, and there are cases of long-standing family-owned printing businesses going on for generations, like that of John Taverner, not John Taverner the composer. So he was set up in Paternoster Row by 1500 when there's a record of him witnessing a will of another London stationer, William Kendall. But then Taverner was set up with his own shop in 1501, and when he died in 1534, his wife took it over, followed by his son. He had an especially good reputation as a binder, and in 1521, he was paid four pounds to bind, cover, and clasp 41 volumes for the King's Chapel at Windsor. So we can imagine this hub of booksellers, of stationers, printers, and bookbinders all along the lanes just to the north of the cathedral, with many of them renting out stalls in the churchyard itself. There was also a school on the grounds of St. Paul's for boys that was founded by the leading humanist scholar John Coolett. And as much as most of this activity was sanctioned by the stationer's company, there, of course, were also cases where these illegal pamphlets, especially religious pamphlets, were printed in some of the very same shops. So imagine how difficult it must have been to have set up a printing press to print illegal sheets now that you know the work that went into it and how, you know, how big these presses were, how you would have something that was doing it illegally must have been incredibly stressful because that's pretty hard to hide. So you start to get this picture of St. Paul's, this massive Gothic church with one of the tallest spires in Europe, although it had been destroyed in 1561, and these large open spaces around it for walking and talking, browsing at the stands and listening to sermons just a couple of streets up from the river. And they were buying books. They were always browsing and buying books. And St. Paul's became synonymous with the book trade. So that's it for this week. Next time, I'm going to take you on a journey to London Bridge, where we will check out the shops. We'll talk about the rapids. And we'll also look at the public privies, which was the height of city convenience. And we will avoid looking at the heads on spikes. The book recommendation is London's Triumph by Stephen Alford, and I'll put a link in the show notes at englandcast.com slash St. Paul's. Remember, you can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016-TESCO, through Twitter at Tesco, or facebook.com slash englandcast. I'll be back again with the next episode on London Bridge, but until then, remember to go to tutorfair.com for all of your tutor gift-giving needs, and also remember TutorCon 2020 tickets at englandcast.com slash TutorCon2020. If you want to come to TutorCon, now is the time to get your ticket. And I will look forward to seeing you. I think it's about 309 days away. So you can start planning your trip to TutorCon. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I hope those of you in the U.S. are having a fantastic Thanksgiving weekend. If you're not in the U.S., I hope you're having a great weekend anyway. And maybe you want to start celebrating Thanksgiving because it's really awesome. <laughs> and I will be back and talk with you again soon. Thank you so much for listening. Blow, northern wind, a central may be sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote board in Bauerbrick, that solely samlies on sea. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.